0: following is a teaching from Irving Bible Church. For more information on how you can join us on a Sunday or take your next step, visit irvingbible.org. Well, good morning, everybody. So glad that you are here, especially that you're here after losing an extra hour of sleep last night. So I just have this sneaking suspicion that our uh, online attendance this week is going to be up just a little bit. Folks that just couldn't resist the temptation to join for worship in their pajamas this morning. So really glad that you're with us, whether you're online or you're here in the room. Pray for your pastor, because right after this service, uh, I hit the road for a college visit road trip to Chicago with three teenagers. So pray for me. I I need it. Uh, And uh, we're going to have a great time this week. But uh, um, before we dive into the sermon this morning, I want to just do a little family business with you. Over the last couple of weeks, we have had about 210 kids in our children's ministry, which is fantastic. Um, that is uh, numbers that are getting back to what things looked like for our children's ministry back before the pandemic began. And um, it's a great problem to have, but it is a bit of a problem. That's about 50 more kids than we've seen on average over the course of the last few months. So it's wonderful to have all those kids, all those families, but 50 extra kids means we need more of you. We need more of you to to step up. We need more of you to to fulfill that commitment that we all made just a few weeks ago when we dedicated ourselves to those children that we dedicated to the Lord. And uh, so we have need for some more volunteers in our children's ministry. Last week, unfortunately, we had to turn away several families because we just didn't have enough volunteers. And if you're one of those families that got turned away, I'm, I'm so grateful that you've come back and you've given us another chance. But for the rest of us, we gotta face it, that if those are first-time visitors, the, the likelihood is if they get turned away, they're not coming back. And so there's a need for us as a family to step up and say, I'm gonna do my part. And if you feel like maybe the Lord's nudging you that you can show up, that you can love kids, you can go to irvingbible.org slash kids and find out more. I've been thinking this week about my second grade Sunday school teacher, Mr. Kretikos. I told a story uh, in our First Watch Men's Ministry on Friday about uh, the impact that this older gentleman who just showed up week in and week out and, uh, and, and served us as little second grade kids, the impact that that has made on my life. And, and you have an opportunity to make that kind of impact on the next generation here at IBC. I believe one of the most important tasks of the church is the passing along of our faith to the next generation. So go to irvingbible.org slash kids and find out more. All right, if you have a Bible with you, uh, turn with me to Judges chapter 17. Judges 17 this morning. Um, we were in Deuteronomy last week, the fifth book of the Bible, the fifth book of the Old Testament. Now we're two books to the right, uh, Deuteronomy, Joshua, and then Judges. We're going to be in Judges chapter 17 this morning. I want to tell you this morning an obscure little story. It's an odd story. It's an obscure little story. In fact, I, I, I venture to guess that it's a story that most of you, if not all of you, have never heard a sermon on in your life. And yet, it's a story that I think has a very important lesson for us about the seduction of autonomy. We are in the second week of a sermon series that we're calling The Story of Us. We began our year together here at IBC with the story of God. Eight weeks where we did an overview of the big biblical story. And now during the season of Lent, we're, we're focusing in on the story of Israel using Israel's story between the time of the exodus and the exile, using Israel's story as a mirror in which to see ourselves, recognizing that there are these patterns that recur in the story of Israel, these patterns that reoccur that is a kind of downward spiral in their lives that oftentimes are the same patterns that continue to show up in our lives today. And so we see the story of Israel is the story of us. And this morning, we're we're, uh, looking at one particular story, a story of one guy at the end of the book of Judges, but who in some sense represents the whole story of the book of Judges. Like like this guy illustrates what's happening in the life of the nation. It's a guy named Micah, not to be confused with the prophet Micah who would come along later. That guy's a great guy. But this guy, his name, Micah, means who is like the Lord? And the answer is definitely not Micah, (laughs) right? This guy is is a mess, but he teaches us something about the seduction of autonomy. Week one of this series, we said the first pattern that begins this downward spiral is forgetfulness. When we forget to remember all that the Lord has done for us. And from there, it leads then to this next pattern, which is autonomy. This desire to be a law unto oneself, to have things my way. I want my will, my way, and my time. And this is a desire that I think is deeply woven into the fabric of our culture today. My will, my way, my time, autonomy, a law unto ourselves. Complete and total freedom from any external constraint. But it's not only a pattern that we find alive and well within our culture But it's a pattern that we find alive and well in many of our hearts. Now, before we look at this specific passage, this particular story about Micah, you need to understand that that Micah's story is an everyman story. That in some sense, the storyteller here at the end of Judges tells this particular story because this guy's story represents the nation's story. That, That this man is everyman. That the story of them is, in fact, the story of us. And and you need to know a little bit about what's going on in the book of Judges in general. The period of the Judges in Israel's history is the period of time after God has delivered his people from exile in Egypt. They've had 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And now he has brought them into this land that he has promised them. And, And Israel has taken occupation of the land that each of the 12 tribes has now settled in their geographic region. And then what happens is they do exactly what God warned them not to do. They forget to remember. The book of Judges begins with a prologue, the first two chapters that kind of give an overview of the rest of the story. And in Judges chapter two and verse 10, we read after that whole generation, that is the generation led by Joshua into the land. After that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, which is just a nice way of saying they died. (laughs) After that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. You see it right there. They, they forgot. They forgot God. They forgot what he had done for his people. And then what happens is th- there's this refrain that occurs throughout the book of Judges that Israel did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And so what God does is he raises up a judge and he, it says uh, there further on in chapter two, whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, He was with the judge and he saved them out of the hands of the enemies as long as the judge lived for the Lord relented because of the groanings under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their ancestors, following other gods and serving and worshiping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. Now, when you hear judge in this passage, don't think Judge Judy, right? Wearing a a black robe with a gavel. Uh, A judge here in the Old Testament story is is a a local uh, warrior leader who God uses to liberate his people from the oppression of their enemies, from the oppression of their neighbors. And what we see is this recurring pattern. It recurs 12 times over the course of this story, over a little beyond 400 years of Israel's history. God raises up a judge. The, the people cry out that God raises up a judge. The judge delivers God's people from their oppressors. The judge dies, and Israel returns to their wicked ways. They return to their sin. And yet each time it goes a little deeper. Each time it gets a little worse. And so judges is a really dark period in Israel's history. And it's there in that context that we pick up this story of this individual guy, this one guy whose story represents what's happening in the whole nation. Judges chapter 17, beginning in verse one. And, and what I wanted to do this morning is I wanted to get a little red flag and put it on every chair so that each of you had your very own little red flag to wave, because I want you to listen in this story to all the red flags. The executive pastor said not in the budget. So you don't actually have a red flag this morning. But, but think about it. You can even, if you want to, wave your imaginary red flag. Listen for the red flags. Now, a man named Micah from the hill country of Ephraim said to his mother, the 1,100 shekels of silver that were taken from you and about which I heard you utter a curse. I have that silver with me. I took it. Okay, now what's going on here, right? Red flags already. 1,100 shekels of silver. That's about 28 pounds worth of silver. This is a fortune in the ancient world, right? This is enough for them to live on. This is enough to to make a life for them for the rest of their lives, which is why the son stole it from his mama, right? That's what's going on here. He's saying, mom, there's that 1,100 shekels of silver that I heard you Curse about I took it from you. right She's so been out of shape because somebody has stole her silver, and so she calls down a curse on whoever stole it. Well, her son Micah hears her curse, and he's superstitious enough to believe it's going to happen to him, and he starts freaking out that he's going to suffer the consequences. Whatever her curse was, he's afraid of it. And so he musters up the courage to go face mama. And to say that silver that was stolen, I stole it. But here it is, have it back. Please don't let the curse happen to me. Now watch the way that she replies, the middle of verse two. Then his mother said, the Lord bless you, my son. Seriously? He just stole 28 pounds. He stole a fortune from her. And he brings it back and that's how she replies, the Lord bless you, my son, right? He, here we realize what's wrong with this guy. Permissive parenting, right? He grew up with a codependent mama. And now she says, may the Lord bless you, my son. And, and I, I wonder, I don't know, this is just speculation on my part, but, but I wonder if maybe this is a little bit like in the South when people say, bless your heart, Right? <laughs> bless your heart. If if you're from another country or another part of this country and you come to the South and you hear somebody say, bless your heart, what you need to know is what they're really saying is just a polite way of saying, you poor idiot, right? (laughs) Bless her heart, bless his heart, bless your heart, you poor idiot. The, The mother responds in a bizarre way. The Lord bless you, my son, for giving me back the fortune you stole from me. Verse three. Get your red flags ready. When he returned the 1,100 shekels of silver to his mother, she said, I solemnly consecrate my silver to the Lord. How pious of her. But watch this. I solemnly consecrate my silver to the Lord for my son to make an image overlaid with silver. I will give it back to you. She's she's saying, I'm going to give you the silver for you to make an idol of the Lord. Red flag. <laughs> so, he returned the, so after he returned the silver to his mother, she took 200 shekels of silver and gave them to a silversmith who used them to make an idol. Red flag. And it was put in Micah's house. Now this man Micah had a shrine. Red flag. And he made an ephod. Red flag. And some household gods. Red flag. And he stalled, installed one of his sons as his priest. Red flag. Right? Now, notice on the front end what she says. I consecrate my silver to the Lord. Sounds awfully pious, but then she says, in order to make an image, an, an idol, something that the Lord back in Deuteronomy had expressly forbidden his people to do. Right? God made it abundantly clear, unambiguously clear, that you should not make an image of me. Because any image that we make of God, in some ways, misrepresents him. And so God said, you're not to make any image of me. The people of Israel were the only people in that part of the ancient world who didn't have an image of their God. Because God had expressly forbidden it. But she decides to consecrate her silver to make this image. But notice how much silver does it say that she had? 1,100 shekels. How much silver does it say that she consecrated? She consecrated all her silver. And yet, how much does she actually give to the silversmith? 200 shekels. It's a, a, little, um, a little over 20% or a little under 20%, right? Um, 20%, I mean, we'd we, we say that's pretty good. I mean, if any of you wanna tithe 20%, we'll take it. This is a joke, right? Don't email me. Um the point isn't the percentage. The point is what she said didn't match up with what she did. She said, I'm going to consecrate it all. And then she gives 200 shekels. And she gives it to the silversmith to, to carve this image of Yahweh. And then Micah takes this image. And it says that he had a shrine. He created a shrine for himself in his own house, right? Something that was, not, um, that was forbidden for God's people to do. He created a shrine for himself in his own house where he put the image of the Lord, which was forbidden to do, along with some other household gods, which was forbidden to do. Not only had the Lord said, you shall not make an image of me, but you shall not worship any other gods than me. He puts the image of the Lord, of Yahweh, right alongside his other household gods. Then it says he makes an ephod, which is a, a a priestly garment. He he creates for himself a priestly garment. And then he says, you know what I need now is a priest. And so he sees his kid, his son. And he says, you, you you'll be my priest, right? So he has his own personal shrine, his own personal statue of Yahweh, his own personal household gods, his own personal ephod, and his own personal priest. This is DIY religion run amok. He's doing it all his own way. I mean, right here in just these five short verses of this obscure little story, they have broken nearly all of the 10 commandments in the space of just five verses because They go their own way. And then watch what the storyteller does. He tells us what's going on. He tells us why this story is being told. Verse six, in those days, Israel had no king and everyone did what they saw fit. I really like the older translation. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Because throughout the story, it said over and over, Israel did evil in the eyes of the Lord, in the eyes of the Lord, in the eyes of the Lord. And then we come here and we see everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Everyone was doing exactly what Micah did. My will, my way, my time. This is the seduction of autonomy. Now, there's three things I want you to see in this story about the seduction of autonomy. And the first one is this. The seduction of autonomy is to honor God with our lips, but to deny him with our lives. Right? The seduction of autonomy is to honor God with our lips, but to deny him with our lives. I mean, Micah and his mama, they talk a really good game. I mean, the name of the Lord is on their lips. They, they talk a really good game, and yet the things they say are denied by the way they live. And while we look at this story and, and find it almost comedic, it is reflective of the very same tendency in our own lives. Our stories might not be nearly as comedic, but they're every bit as foolish that we talk a really good game, many of us. And yet, aren't we prone to deny with our lives what we say with our lips? Aren't we prone to to, to have those patterns in our lives that we know God doesn't want for us, that we know threaten our most cherished relationships, that, that we know are not good for our souls. And yet we say, I want my will, my way. My time, the seduction of autonomy to honor God with our lips, but to deny him with our lives. The second thing I want you to notice is the seduction of autonomy is to make life work out of our own resources. The seduction of autonomy is to make life work out of our own resources, And this once again is as ancient as the fall, the the story of the human fall into sin all the way back in Genesis. Sin enters the story and it's immediately followed by shame. They realize they are naked. There's some sense in which they feel compelled to hide from one another and to hide from God because as soon as sin enters the story, it's immediately followed by shame. And what do they do? They say, I can fix this. I can do something about this. I can make life work out of my own strength, out of my own power, out of my own resources. And so they sow fig leaves for themselves. And, and through the course of this Lenten season, we're using that fig leaf as an image just to remind us of that perpetual tendency of our heart. As Crystal said earlier, alluding to the line from John Calvin, our hearts are perpetual idol-making factories. We continue to look for things or people in our lives that we think are going to be what makes us okay. There's a little verse that's tucked away in the book of Jeremiah, a verse that I come back to again and again and again, because I think it so speaks to our tendency as the Lord is speaking to his people in the old Testament. So too, it speaks to us. He says to them, two sins, my people have committed Jeremiah 2:13. 13, two sins. My people have committed number one, they have forgotten me, the fountain of living water. Right? What God is doing there is he's indicating that he understands that we humans have these deep needs, these deep desires, these longings. And what God says is, I'm the one who satisfies your deepest needs. I'm the one who satiates your deepest thirst. But you've forgotten me, the fountain of living water. And he says, and second, you've dug cisterns for yourselves broken cisterns that can't hold water, right? He's saying that that we have this tendency to continue to, 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 to come back to things again and again and again and again that we think will satisfy us, that we think will make us okay, that ever since the fall, we've been sowing fig leaves and digging cisterns. And the problem with our cisterns is that sometimes they work Right, Never fully, never finally do they satisfy us, but enough to keep us coming back for more. The seduction of autonomy is to say, I can make life work out of my own strength, out of my own power, out of my own resources, that I can turn again to my broken cisterns. The seduction of autonomy is to honor God with our lips, but to deny him with our lives. The seduction of autonomy is to make life work out of our own resources. And finally, the seduction of autonomy is that it seems good. The seduction of autonomy is that it seems good. It says there, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. It seemed good to them. And autonomy can seem like something that is good for us. It is freedom, freedom from any external control or constraint. Surely that's a good thing, isn't it? Freedom. And yet, I think we can distinguish between two kinds of freedom, what we might call a negative freedom and a positive freedom. A negative freedom, which is a freedom from, and a positive freedom that is a freedom to The the negative freedom that is a freedom from, freedom from any external control or constraint, a complete sense of autonomy, to go my way, to do my thing, to determine my truth, that can seem like something that is attractive, that is good. And yet the consequences of pursuing that kind of freedom are actually devastating. You actually see that if you read the last few chapters of Judges. This little story that begins with Micah and his mom sort of snowballs from there. And the consequences of the story as they play out eventually lead to um, sexual violence, to murder, and eventually to outright civil war. And it's an ugly story that begins just with this little seemingly harmless tale of Micah and his mom. The consequences of living in that kind of freedom from constraint are actually Devastating. A French sociologist named Alain Ehrenberg wrote a book called The Weariness of the Self, diagnosing the history of depression in the contemporary age. It's a social history of depression. And what he suggests in this book is that um, he, he tracks the rising rates of depression in Western culture that correspond with this increasing sense of autonomy. That's created by the declining influence of religion, tradition, and a sense of shared morality. People are crushed under the weight of all that freedom. People are crushed under the weight of a sense of shame that they feel that they shouldn't continue to experience and yet they do. That kind of freedom can be crushing And yet there's another kind of freedom, the kind of freedom that the Bible talks about. The Bible doesn't talk about freedom as this sense of freedom to do whatever it is that you wanna do. The kind of freedom the Bible promises that it has on offer for us is the positive freedom to flourish as the kind of creatures that God has made us to be. It's a freedom to, to live as who God has made us to be, free from the bondage of sin and shame free to be all that he has made us to be by living within the constraints that he has established for us. That that freedom is not to be found with no constraints, it's to be found living in the constraints that God has established for us, wherein we flourish as the kind of people that he has made us to be. Not living in autonomy, but living in submission and dependence. And so, the seduction of freedom. First, it's to honor God with our lips, but deny him with our lives. Second, to make life work out of our own resources. And third, it seems to be good, and yet it's not. So, so what do we need to help us live into this kind of freedom that God has on offer? What do we need to free us from the seduction of autonomy? Well, very quickly as we close, I think there's two things. One, we need community to whom we can be accountable. I mean, do you notice That this whole story of Micah, he's completely independent. He's completely isolated. He's completely doing his very own thing. Disconnected from anybody in his life that can look him in the eye and say, that is stupid. And friends, you and I need people in our lives that can tell us that. They can tell us you're, you're doing the wrong thing. You're going the wrong way. And we need people in our lives to whom we can come and say, I've done the wrong thing. I've gone the wrong way. Autonomy thrives in isolation. Isolation leads us deeper into autonomy. But what we need is a community to whom we can be accountable. And the second thing we need is a sovereign who saves us from ourselves. That line that we saw at the end of Micah's story is the same line that comes in again at the very end of the book of Judges. The very last line in the book of Judges, Judges 21, verse 25. In those days, Israel had no king and everyone did as they saw fit. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. But but from the vantage point of the storyteller, the point that he's trying to make In those days, Israel had no king. He's saying what Israel needed was a king, a sovereign who could save them from themselves. And in the ultimate disclosure of the revelation of God, we come to know that the ultimate king who saves us from ourselves is King Jesus, Israel's Messiah, the world's Lord that Jesus has come to be that sovereign king who saves us from ourselves, that that he came into the world and, and lived a life of perfect obedience to God, showing us how to live, showing us what it means to be human, living within the constraints that God has established for us. And then dying on the cross, there bearing our guilt, our shame upon himself, that we can be liberated from the shackles of sin and shame. Because Jesus took our sin and shame upon himself when he died on the cross. But then he was raised from the dead, triumphing over sin and death that we believing in him might have the hope of eternal life. To save us from the seduction of autonomy, we need a sovereign who saves us when we can't save ourselves. Thank you for listening to this teaching from Irving Bible Church. For more information on how to join us on a Sunday or take your next step, visit irvingbible.org.